The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. While all abuse is terrible, there's something particularly insidious about the sexual abuse of children. The damage that's done to a young life is particularly lethal because it damages that life at its very core. The story of one survivor of childhood abuse illustrates this reality. She was about eight years old when a very close family member interacted with her in a highly inappropriate way. It was devastating to hear how this woman described what took place within her young mind at that moment. She said, what he did to me, you know, when he did it to me, I immediately thought to myself, he's family, he knows me, he's supposed to love me, so if he thinks I'm that kind of a person, I must be that kind of a person. And that embedded lie set off a pattern that went on to devastate her life for the next 40 years. There's an old saying, as the twig bends, so grows the tree. As the twig bends, so grows the tree. From that moment on, she behaved the way she behaved because she thought the way she thought. She behaved the way she behaved because she thought the way she thought. You see, her identity shaped her behavior. And that's what identity does. Identity shapes our behavior. What belief is at the root of your behavior? What sits at the source of your identity. Now, not everyone has been traumatized like that little girl, but everyone does have a defining story. Everyone is believing something about themselves at their core. And that belief, that core identity, shapes our behavior. So what's the story at your core? What's the defining theme of your life? Where are you getting your identity? Many of us find our identity in what we do for a living. Listen, if if you're a successful realtor and the market suddenly shifts in Vancouver, do you suddenly go from being a somebody to being a nobody? Does that even make sense? Your identity shouldn't hinge on the volatility of the Vancouver housing market. But when we gain our identity by what we do, whatever our job, whatever our profession, we place ourselves in a similar scenario. As your outline says, when we try to gain our identity by what we do, we're only as good as we can produce. And that is a recipe for life on a roller coaster. When you define yourself by what you do, you're only as good as you can produce today. And that leads to life on a roller coaster. Some people get their identity by what they do. Other people get their identity from their appearance. There are beautiful people out there who are deathly afraid of aging. Women who are afraid to turn 30 or even admit that they've turned 30. Proverbs says that beauty is fleeting because beauty is fleeting. It cannot last. And when we try to gain our identity by how we look, we're only as good as we appear. And the sad truth is that gravity always wins. 
Trust me, folks, gravity always wins. Right now, gravity is working on your body, pulling things down. Gravity took my hair, ripped it out by the roots. Gravity always wins. Children and family is another place where we can be tempted to make our primary identity. But dangerous things happen when you make your family your core identity. Oh, it's one thing to be proud of your family, but when you make it your core identity, your children and your family, you're in trouble. When we try to gain our identity from our family, we're only as good as they appear. And that turns something beautiful into something toxic. Where do we get our identity? Well, some by what we do, others by how we look, others by who we're related to. All are faulty sources of core identity. So what should be at our core then? Where should we get our identity? Well, as you can see, this issue of identity is an important thing for us to figure out. It's one of life's big questions. And today, we're going to use Scripture as our guide to see if we can unpack the proper answer to this question. If you have a Bible with you, turn, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1. Now, maybe you're here and you don't own a Bible. Then take the copy of the Bible that's in the back of the pew in front of you. Take that home with you as our gift to you. Now, admittedly, the version I'm going to be reading from today is different from the version that's in the back of your pew. I'm going to be reading in a few moments from the message paraphrase. Uh, I normally read from the New International Version, but today uh, I'm going to be reading from the message uh, paraphrase. While you're turning to Ephesians 1, let me say this to some people who are in this room right now. The next 20 minutes are going to be life-changing for some of you. There are some people within the sound of my voice who will leave this building radically different from who you were when you came into this building. Not because of the power of my preaching, but because of the power of God's Spirit. If you're here and you're sincerely searching for truth, for life, for meaning, I encourage you to listen very carefully because I believe that God himself has something very powerful to say to you. Pay very close attention to what's going on inside of you over the next few moments. Because before you leave today, you're going to be given an opportunity to respond to what God is saying to you. All right, are you at Ephesians chapter 1 yet? Before we look at the passage from Ephesians, I want to give us a a bit of a sense of what this book of, of Ephesians, this letter of Ephesians is all about. Now the remains of the city ancient Ephesus are located in modern-day Turkey. Ephesians was a letter written to a bunch of people in the ancient first-century city of Ephesus. If you strolled through the city of Ephesus in the first century, you would be amazed at what you see. This was a world-class city. There was a giant mall at the heart of Ephesus. It was two football-sized malls side-by-side, filled with stores. You could buy anything in Ephesus. I mean anything. Over here is the temple of Artemis. It was about the size of another giant football field. It was surrounded by 127 60-foot-tall marble columns. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. When it was built, it was the tallest, the largest building in the world. Ephesus had a theater. And when I say theater, I'm not talking about some rinky-dink cineplex. The theater in Ephesus sat 25,000 people. That's the theater behind me. 
Like I said, Ephesus was a world-class city. It was the fourth largest city in the world at the time. It was like a first century Hong Kong, Tokyo, or New York. But despite the amazing architecture in Ephesus, everything was not all good and beautiful. There were pickpockets, scam artists, murderers, people with volcanic tempers, binge drinkers in Ephesus. All the vices that come with an urban setting in a broken world were present in the city of Ephesus. And that's why a man named Paul arrived there around the year 53, AD 53. And he began sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to the city of Ephesus. Now, Paul was there for about two years, and he started a church, and then he left Ephesus. He left people behind who had brand new hearts. They had new hearts, but they still had old habits. And so it was no surprise then that long, not long after Paul departed Ephesus, some people began drifting back into their old habits, back into their old lifestyles. So only a couple years after he left, Paul wrote them a letter. Now, this letter served as a sort of a refresher course in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That letter, that refresher course, is the letter called Ephesians that we have in our Bibles today. If you were Paul, what would you have written in your letter to the church in Ephesus? If you had been given the task of addressing people who were wandering back into old destructive patterns, how would you have handled it? What would you have written? How Paul chose to handle it is fascinating, and it reveals something to us about the power of identity. The letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians is divided into two very distinct sections. It's almost like there's a hinge in the middle of this letter with two very distinct sections between those hinges, or on either side of that hinge. The first three chapters uh, in in Ephesians have a certain feel to them, and then the last three chapters have a completely different feel to them in this book. In the second half of the letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul addresses all the improper behaviors that were going on. He says things like, okay, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. So people had some anger issues in Ephesus. He says, let no unwholesome talk or no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up. He said to them, hey, listen, let him who is stealing, you stop stealing. I know some of you slip back into your pickpocketing and your stealing. Stop doing that. He says, oh, and by the way, some of you have gone back to lying. Let each of you speak truthfully to his neighbor. In the last three chapters, Paul says, this is how you should be acting. Paul writes a lot of things in the last three chapters that you and I probably would have written. That's how Paul concludes the letter, but that's not how he began the letter. Well, how did Paul begin the letter? We'll get to that in a minute. Before we do, I want to tell you something about from our recent trip to Israel. A couple weeks ago, I had the privilege, the joy of taking 66 of my closest friends from Broadway to Israel on a a 10-day trip. We had two buses there, and we toured uh, the nation of Israel, biblical sites. We went into Jordan as well. It was a fascinating trip. By the way, Lord willing, I plan to take another group in March of 2020. That's two years from now. I'm giving you two years to save up. March 2020, circle it on your calendar. Tell your friends right now, tell your spouse, we're going on that trip. Join me in Jerusalem in March of 2020. 
Well, anyway, while we were on this last trip, we had two buses and two large groups, and, and, uh, and we had a guide in each bus. And, and what our guide did was, and this is the first time that, uh, of many tours I've taken that we had this device, where the guide had something called a whisper, where he had a, like a microphone, and he would speak into the microphone, and all of us in the group had little, uh, almost like little iPhones hanging around our neck, and we had an earpiece, and we could hear everything our guide was saying. So it was very handy as he's walking along. He didn't have to shout. He could just talk, normal tone, and we could hear everything he said as we're following along. Now, the group I was in, we had about 34, I think, in our group, and uh, the other bus had the other uh, remainder. And uh, so what we did was, with our guide, I said, Aaron, you be on at the front, and you talk through the, the headset there, and I'll be the last person, so you know when you see me, I will have gotten all the stragglers. You know, because there's always people who want to remain behind after he's spoken and take pictures or touch something or look, and I, I get that. So I just wanted to make sure that everybody was uh, between me and our guide. So I would always be the last person, because most people who came were faithful givers to Broadway, and I didn't want to lose anybody in Israel. So, you know, so I was always at the very end of this long line, and we're walking through crowded streets in Jerusalem and so on, and, and every now and then, I discovered that I'd be so far detached from our guide that I couldn't hear him in my earpiece. I had completely lost touch with our guide. We'd be at one couple places where we're in the, the old city and in the Arab quarter, and did he turn left or right? Did he go straight? I have no idea. I've lost the guide and I can't hear him anymore. I'm out of range. I'm out of touch. Well, apparently, Paul recognized that something similar was happening to the Ephesians. They, too, were losing contact with their guide, and it was affecting their behavior. They were acting like they were lost. They behaved the way they behaved because they thought the way they thought, and they thought the way they thought because they had lost touch with their true identity. So Paul began his letter by bringing them back. He began his letter by reminding them of their true identity. But he did it in a way that is pretty well lost for us 21st century readers. Paul showed them their true identity by using some imagery, a metaphor, that would have struck a deep chord with the Ephesians, but is kind of lost on us. A few moments ago, we learned that our identity shapes our behavior. We then went on to learn three unhealthy sources of identity, our job, our appearance, our family. Well, in the first few verses of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we're about to discover the biblical source, a healthy source of a healthy identity. I'm reading, as I said, from the message paraphrase. Ephesians 1, you can follow along on the side screens. Paul says this, I, Paul, am under God's plan as an apostle, a special agent of Christ Jesus, writing to you faithful Christians in Ephesus. I greet you with the grace and peace poured into our lives by God our Father and our Master, Jesus Christ. How blessed is God, and what a blessing he is. He's the Father of our Master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the locus, as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. 
He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Now because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, the blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're a free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he's working out in everything and everyone. I wonder if you're seeing it. It's right here in this passage. Look again at verses four to six. It's on your outline, I printed it. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. Ah, what pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. What should be at the core of our identity? According to Paul, this is your identity as a follower of Jesus. This is who you are. This is all that you need to remember. This is the truth that should lie at ground zero of your life. Here it is. I have been adopted by God. I have been adopted by God. That's it. That is the heart of your biblical identity. Repeat it to yourself over and over again. Memorize it. I have been adopted by God. Say it out loud with me. I have been adopted by God. Everything else in your life should exist in the shadow of this one fact. I have been adopted by God. I am God's adopted child. God settled upon me as the focus of his love. This is something God wanted to do. It's something God decided to do. This is something God did. This isn't something I did. This is something God did. So what's your core? What's your primary identity? You have been adopted by God. Are you surprised at this answer? I mean, were you expecting something a little more involved, maybe a little more profound? I doubt what, that we receive this information with the same intensity as Paul's first readers. You see, our problem is, and there's really not much we can do about it initially, is we tend to see scriptures through 21st century eyes rather than seeing scripture through the first century lens that it was originally written in and received it. So let's try to experience this passage as the people in Ephesus would have experienced it 2,000 years ago. And in order to do that, let's imagine ourselves sitting in that 25,000-seat theater in Ephesus. We've walked in, taken our seats, because we're here to see the Greek play Oedipus Rex, and it's about to begin. All of the Ephesians sitting around us in our theater know the backstory. They know this ancient Greek drama very well. It's very popular. 
The king and queen of Thebes have been warned by a prophet, by an oracle, that when they have a son, this son will cause their family great pain and grave ill and grave damage. So when a son is eventually born to them, the king takes his newborn little boy, pins his feet together, takes him out into a field, and abandons him in a field. The child is then soon found by a shepherd boy who takes them in and gives this child. The child ends up being raised by the king of Corinth, and as the story unfolds, tragedy lies at every turn. It's a fascinating story, actually. Now, it's important to note that this part about the king abandoning his baby boy wouldn't shock our Ephesian viewers at all. Child abandonment was very common in first century Roman culture. In Roman culture, when a baby was born, it was set at its father's feet. And the father either picked up the baby and accepted it, or turned around and walked away and rejected that baby. Maybe he wanted a boy and had a girl. Maybe he wanted a girl and had a boy. Maybe he detected some kind of defect that displeased him. It was the father's decision at birth whether to accept or reject every child born. Now, rarely in Roman culture would the baby be outright killed. Instead, the child would be just left out, exposed to the elements for the gods to decide the child's fate. I read this past week that there's a gate uh, outside the eastern gate of Ephesus. Where outside of that gate, there was a garbage dump where people would bring babies that they didn't want. Frequently, a child would be taken to the marketplace. Remember we talked about the two giant football-sized marketplace, field-sized marketplace? Often, babies that weren't wanted, children that weren't wanted, would be taken to that marketplace and just abandoned there. And often, people would come along, see an abandoned child, and take that child home and raise them to be a slave or a prostitute. I read that there was a physician in the region of Ephesus who wrote a manual in the first century on how to measure the dimensions of a child to increase the odds of picking an abandoned child that will make a strong slave. It was to this culture that Paul was writing when he talked about adoption. When Paul writes to the churches in and around Ephesus, and says that in love, God adopted them, he's writing to an an abandonment culture. He's writing to a culture where babies were routinely tossed aside. So it's to these people, Paul writes and says, listen, if you have come to know Jesus, your most defining moment isn't who threw you out, it's who took you in. If you have come to know Jesus, your most defining moment isn't who rejected you, it's who selected you. If you have come to know Jesus, you are defined by who picked you out, who picked you up, and who took you home. Ephesians, you were abandoned on a street corner. You were dropped off in a dumpster. But know this, God himself has adopted you and made you his child. That is the truth that should define your life. That is the reality that should lie at the core of your identity. What story is presently sitting at the core of your life? What story should be sitting at the core of your life as a follower of Jesus? It's simple. I have been adopted by God. 
I am unconditionally loved by God. It makes no difference what others have done to me or what I have done to others in the past. None of that touches on the core of my identity. My core identity is summed up in one phrase. I have been adopted by God. And that brings us to today's big idea where we do our best each week to sum up the teaching in one simple sentence. Here's today's big idea, today's one simple sentence. My identity is rooted in God's activity. My identity is rooted in God's activity. My identity is not rooted in what I've done. My identity is not rooted in my successes. My identity is not rooted in my failures. My identity is not rooted in what I've achieved. My identity is not rooted in what I failed to do. My identity is not rooted in what others have done to me. My identity is not rooted in what I've done to others. My identity is not rooted in my greatest successes. My identity is not rooted in my greatest failures and shames. My identity is not rooted in labels that other people have tried to put on me over the last 50 some odd years of my life. My identity is rooted in God's activity. My identity is not rooted in your activity. My identity is not rooted in my activity. My identity is not rooted in the circumstances around me. My identity is rooted in God's activity. I am who he says I am. My identity is rooted in God's activity. We have steps journals here at Broadway. And steps journals, I hope you have one. Pick one up at Timbers if you don't have one yet. Steps journal is a way for you to read through the scripture daily at whatever pace works for you. And uh, steps, of course, stands for S-T-E-P, scripture, teaching, experience, and prayer. So you read a passage that day, and then you write out a verse or two that jumped out at you, and then the E you write, stands for experience. You write out and you journal what you're experiencing in response to the scripture that you've read. And then P, you pray in response to what you've experienced. We have taught here about how God speaks to us still today through spontaneous thoughts. Of course, it's all submitted to the word of God. The word of God is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness, says in 2 Timothy 3, 16. But God, we believe in a dynamic spirituality at Broadway. We believe that God still speaks and interacts with his people. Several years ago now, I was journaling, I was, meaning I was writing down what I was feeling God by his spirit was saying to me in response to what I had read that day. I don't remember what was going on in my life, but clearly I was struggling with my identity. Something wasn't right in my life at this time. And as I was writing down, what I often will do is I picture myself when I'm journaling, I'll, sometimes I'll close my eyes and I picture myself sitting across from Jesus on, in a field and having a conversation with Jesus. And that's what I was doing this day. Close my eyes and just try to envision myself having a conversation with Jesus and writing down impressions that I felt the Spirit of God saying to me. I'll never forget this conversation. I was sitting there and and uh, for whatever reason, I was battling, I was struggling. And Jesus pointed at a, a rock, a pebble on the ground. And he said, Darren, what's that? And I said, what's this? That's it's a rock. It's a pebble. He says, that's right. Jesus said, what do you think that's worth? What's that, worth? Yeah, what do you think it's worth? It's not worth anything. It's worthless, literally. 
It's a rock. It's been trampled on. It's been there for forever. Who knows? And people have walked on, trampled on. Hey, goats have probably peed on it for all I know. It's just a rock. Jesus said, that's right. How much is it worth? I said, it's not worth anything. Jesus said, that's right. Then in my vision, he reached down and he picked it up. He said, now how much is it worth? I said, it's priceless. If I had a rock that could be verified that Jesus held it in his hand, you would not have enough money in the world to purchase that rock. Jesus said, that's right. Darren, you're that rock. Your life was just one amongst many, laying on the ground, trampled by others. But I reached down, I picked you up, and I hold you in the palm of my hand. And now your life is priceless because I hold you in my hand. And what's true of my life is true of your life. I was being reminded that day that it is God's presence in a life that sets it apart. My identity is rooted in God's activity. I was being reminded that day that it's God's activity in a life that sets it apart and gives it value. My identity is rooted in God's activity. Maybe you're here, and like the Ephesians, you're a follower of Jesus, but you're finding yourself slipping into old patterns. The joy and the clarity of your walk with Christ has faded somehow. The Spirit of God is calling out to you today. Remember who you are. You once lived in the gutter, but he came along. He found you. He chose you. He picked you up. He took you into his arms. He lavished his love upon you. He calls you his own to heal you, to help you, to restore your soul. You are adopted by God. That's your story. That's your identity. That's who you are. So live in the light and in the power of that truth. Maybe you're here and you're searching. You're searching for an anchor in your life. So much has happened to you and through you in life. Some of it brings great pride. And some of it brings only shame. And it depends on where you choose to focus at any given moment. It depends on what you choose to remember as you sit there. You're either a hero in the past or you are a villain. It depends on what you want to remember at any given moment. The truth is you don't know what to believe about yourself. You don't know which part of you is the real part. Was I the real Darren the hero? Was the real Darren the cad? I don't know which story is my story. But the truth is they're both my story. The Spirit of God wants to bring clarity to your soul today. The Spirit of God wants to speak peace into your heart today. The Spirit of God wants to bring eternal life into your existence today. He wants to change the source of your identity. You can walk out of this room with a new truth at the core of your being. Your identity won't be rooted in what you've done or what others have done to you. Your identity won't be rooted in your activity or the activity of, of others in your life. Your identity will be rooted in God's activity. Your identity will be rooted in one simple, life-changing truth. You have been adopted by God. He has chosen you. He's called you his own. 
And he wants to lavish his love upon you. So will you let him? Will you say yes to his overwhelming love? <laughs>